This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next and the Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. In a moving commentary published by the Washington Post earlier this summer, former U.S. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice wrote, words cannot dull the pain of George Floyd's family. Like many Black families before them, they find themselves in the spotlight for reasons every parent, sibling, and spouse dreads. But, she warns, if the past is a guide, these feelings will fade and we will return to our lives. But, she says, something tells me not this time, not this time. Floyd's horrific death should be enough to finally move us to positive action. Well, this is a powerful passage, but of course, since these words were written, and since I talked with her in mid-July, Events have unfolded to reinforce those events in Minneapolis, most notably the new events in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which are equally horrific. So this time is persisting. And the reaction to this time, will it really develop in the way that Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, now Senior Fellow and Director of the Hoover Institution, will things be different this time? So I thought it would be worth bringing back uh, Condoleezza Rice's comments, realizing that they were voiced a couple of months ago uh, because they have a meaning and a significance that uh, will last for uh, a long time to come. Condi, your commentary expresses in writing what so many of us were feeling ourselves. Uh, but George Floyd is not the first man to have been killed by a police officer. Why do you think it is different this time? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on the, the podcast. Uh, it's a, the work that you do is outstanding. And I look forward to our conversation a little bit later on about uh, education. Let me just say that the, the reason that I believe that this is different this time is there's always in, in history, there are these inflection points. There are these moments in which people say, all right, enough is enough. Uh, we saw that, as I said, in the op-ed with Rosa Parks, where she just decided one day she was not going to go to the back of the bus. There's a famous saying by the great civil rights leader, Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a sharecropper's, uh, a sharecropper, uh, who unseated the Mississippi delegation to the Democratic Convention because it was, didn't have Blacks represented. She said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I think that's how people feel. And you can see now uh, that perhaps it was the brutality of the death of, um, of, of George Floyd, the sense that you had to be in a position to dehumanize him in order to do that to him that I think has made us look uh, not just at the circumstances where you may have been in a bad neighborhood and maybe the police misinterpreted what was going on. Maybe they thought they saw a gun. We've, we've heard of those, but there is nothing to explain this except dehumanization. And that reminds us that unfortunately we have a, a history, a legacy uh, going back to the birth defect of our country, slavery of dehumanization. And so I think people have rallied now to think about the depth of uh, the problems of racial injustice in America. Well, yes, no, I'm sure that's right. And, and you also mentioned in the op-ed that these events brought back the memories of uh, Faithful Sunday in September of 1963 when a bomb in a Birmingham church killed four girls in your neighborhood. Yes. Can you tell me more about 
that. That must have been a horrendous event. 1963, uh, September 1963. My father was a Presbyterian minister, and uh, so we were actually at the church already. Uh, my mother was the minister of music, so we were at the church getting ready for, for service. And in those days in Birmingham, uh, when you felt a shudder, like we did, because my father's church was about a mile and a half as the crow flies from 16th Street Baptist Church. When you felt a shudder like that, you knew a bomb had gone off someplace. Bombs were going off in neighborhoods pretty regularly during this time. And so um, it was, of course, well before cell phones. So there was confusion. What had happened? Had it happened at our church? And then the phone tree began and we heard it had happened at 16th Street Baptist Church. And then it wasn't long before we heard it happened in the basement. It happened to four little girls and then their names started to be known. And in our little black community in Birmingham, everybody knew at least one of those girls. Denise McNair had been in my father's kindergarten. I have a picture of my father handing her her kindergarten graduation diplomacy. Her father was the milkman and the photographer for everybody's birthday parties. We knew the McNairs. Addie Mae Collins was a student in my, my uncle's homeroom. He said the next day when he went to school and her chair was empty, he just broke down and cried. So this wasn't history to me. This wasn't something that I watched on television. This was something that I felt very deeply and personally. And I can tell you as an eight-year-old girl, it was pretty frightening. And I remember asking my parents if I could sleep in their bed that night. And just imagine how frightening it was for parents not to know whether or not you're gonna send your child to Sunday school and uh, they'll not come home alive. And so it was a searing experience. It was a searing experience for Birmingham and it was a searing experience for the country that then I think did help propel some of the great civil rights legislation that we would get the next year. Well, five years later, we have one of those horrendous years, 1968. 1968, we're in the Vietnam War. Uh, we don't understand it. It refuses to go to an end. Um, we have the assassination of Martin Luther King, of Robert Kennedy. We have uh, racial violence in 100 cities or more. I was living on the south side of Chicago, one block away. All the businesses were burnt down. They never returned. A traumatic moment again, uh, which then in the wake of that, we do get quite a bit of change. We get desegregation in the South, beginnings elsewhere in the country. We, um, we also see many new programs that create opportunities for Black people in universities, businesses, sports, entertainment, politics. There's a lot of change that takes place in the wake of, that was an inflection moment, really, in many ways. But somehow, many people thought, okay, so it's all, we've, we've done it, we've done it. It, it, it. We can now rest on our laurels. So why isn't that the case? I think we have to recognize that the human effort to get better, to get more perfect, a more perfect union, is an ongoing everyday process that has to keep going. Your work is actually never done because these human institutions are in and of themselves imperfect and you're always trying to overcome those imperfections. And I know we wanna be done with the project and move on, 
But we have to first recognize how much we have achieved in this period of time. Uh, we talked about my time in Birmingham. Uh, going back well before that, the Constitution of the United States once counted my ancestors as three-fifths of a man. And then I stood underneath a portrait of Benjamin Franklin in the State Department in 2005 and took an oath of office to that Constitution to protect and defend America as its Secretary of State sworn in by a Jewish Supreme Court justice, a woman named Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Would Ben Franklin have ever imagined that happening? Of course not. And so we have made progress, but we have some problems that have turned out to be very stubborn. One is that we still are not, and I would say never going to really be colorblind. Race is different than ethnicity. Race comes out of the legacy of slavery. Well, my ancestors, so my, my uh, great-grandmother, her father was the slave owner. My, my DNA is 40% European. That means that we have these sort of deep visceral wounds of slavery. And so when we walk into a room and we see somebody who's white or black, the best of people, will have some preconceptions about that person. And so it's hard work, it's spade work, getting in there and trying to figure out how we overcome those perceptions of each other. We also have, unfortunately, a very difficult problem of race and poverty. If you are trapped in race and poverty, that's the worst circumstance that our country can produce. And so we need to work on the interventions that are going to deal with poverty and deal with race. I hear people talk about systemic racism, yes, but it's gonna to have to be dealt with one blow at a time. And that's why I wrote at the end of that Washington Post piece that we each have to think, what is the one thing that I personally can do to deal with the issues of the impact of race in American society. And for me, that focuses on education. Well, that is a very um, you know, moving way of putting it. And, and I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Race is different than ethnicity. We have been a fantastic country at absorbing all kinds of groups from all parts of the world, and we continue to do so. And the absorption of the Hispanic community into the United States is making serious progress. When I look at the information about how that community is working its way through the American experience, it doesn't look that much different from ethnic groups in the past. But the race legacy, the slave legacy, that is very, very deep. There's no doubt about it. But we have had Head Start. We've had compensatory education. We put a lot of resources into trying to address that question in our educational system. Why haven't we been more successful? Well, I, I think we have to start by saying uh, we've had some successes. Uh, more generations of uh, Blacks who have gone to college, more generations of Blacks who are getting advanced degrees. Uh, we still have a, a wealth gap because it takes generations to overcome a wealth gap, but we, we've made some progress. But there is a persistent, really stubborn 
part of this that we aren't getting at. You, you mentioned uh, some of the programs out of the Great Society in the, the 60s. My father's church had one of the first Head Start programs in Birmingham because uh, he was an educator. He was a high school guidance counselor, later on a university administrator. I remember when they announced Head Start, he said, I'm gonna have one of those in my church. And in the black community, the church was sometimes the place where you put these, uh, these programs because you couldn't go to so many of the segregated um, facilities that were there. So we had a Head Start program in our church. Head Start, we now know has really not achieved what it was intended to achieve. And so I think the first thing we need to do is we need to really take a hard, cold look at some of the programs that we did put in place. Why, what did they achieve and what did they not? And that's the role of data. That's the role of research. Um, we're too quick to either dismiss or to say, oh, we have to have more of those without really looking at what works and what doesn't. We know that family structure is a huge problem uh, in many communities, but in the in black communities, family structure is an issue. I'm very active with the Boys and Girls Clubs of America. And um, I can tell you that in some of these Boys and Girls Clubs, these staff members are almost surrogate family. They're surrogate parents because the parents uh, are maybe not there or maybe the parent, the, the single mother is working three jobs and has to have some place for the child. So we have to figure out what's that wraparound for the child that doesn't really have the family structure that would allow for success. So this is a multi-layered problem. And I don't think that we have solved the multi-layers, but it's no excuse um, not to keep trying. Yeah, well, marriage and family life is so crucial for all people and uh, Yet you see more single parent families uh, today than ever before. Uh, it's not only in the black community that's growing at a more rapid rate in the white community. Um, and some people say, okay, our government is actually making things worse by creating a dependency on government instead of encouraging self-reliance. So how do you support people who need the resources of society in order to have the basic necessities of life without having these problems of um, undermining some basic institutions of our society? Well, it has to be both a, a push and a pull, both a supply and demand, if you will. So the first thing is they've got to be able to get jobs. And uh, if you're gonna say you have to be more self-reliant, then they've gotta be able to get jobs that pay well enough to be self-reliant. And that goes directly to job training and skills development. Um, we have a situation uh, that's growing now as automation, uh, as machine learning uh, is beginning to automate jobs so that the low, the well-paying, low-skilled job is really no more. How are we going to get people up to that level? So I would put an awful lot into the effort to get people better skills. You know, we're seeing some great experiments in this regard, Paul. So some community colleges are working with industry to say, all right, maybe you don't need a four-year degree. Maybe two years and an apprenticeship and then a well-paying job is better. The number of, of uh, manufacturers will tell you or construction people, if I could find welders, I would hire them all. If I could find, so we know that there are, there's a job skills mismatch because we've got jobs that are going unfilled 
because people don't have the skills. So the first thing I'd say is, before you say they have to be self-reliant, make sure they can be self-reliant. And then secondly, um, if the jobs are there and the means are there to get the jobs, you've got to give people incentives to get off of government. I thought that the, the way that uh, we did um, welfare reform in the, the 90s, in the Clinton administration, by the way, bipartisan welfare reform, Newt Gingrich and Bill Clinton working together to get, uh, to get welfare reform. We can. That actually did slow down the growth of single parent families in the black community. If you look at the data, the trend line changes in 1995 and it's, it's not been, it's been going down since that time. Well, that of course, in the white community, it's still growing, but in the African-American community, it begins to decline with welfare reform. Well, that tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us then to look at both the incentives for people to, uh, just stay on government assistance and the capacity to actually give them something to do if they're not on government, government assistance. And let's see if we can both push and pull people back to work. Um, and as to the questions about single parent family, that's also a, a cultural uh, change that we've got to deal with. I mean, people, uh, you know, people ought to be preaching in our churches and in our schools and in our, our clubs uh, that it's just not acceptable to uh, help children for whom you're not responsible. And the symbolic symbols of the leaders in our society, I would add to that. It seems like so many of the people who are appreciated and valued do not provide the proper kind of symbolization of the importance of marriage and family. I don't know how to change that, but I think it's really important really important. Um, so now our schools, can we transform the school system that we have or do we have to invent a new school system? We have charter schools out there that are still a very small share of the population, but I've been looking at some data lately that shows they are improving over time, whereas you're not seeing much improvement in the schools that are being run by school districts. So do, is the structure of our system impeding our capacity to make the changes in education that you have outlined here and are so desperately needed? Well, I'll put it to you this way, Paul. If you look at the tertiary system, the university system, we are the gold standard in the world. Now, it's not that we don't have some problems, but people come here from all over the world to try to, and, and just look at the number of leaders who want their kids to come to school in the United States. So we're the gold standard. We have a couple of things going for us that the public school system doesn't. First of all, we have variety. So you can go to a small liberal arts college, you can go to a large research university, you go to state university. So we have some variety. Secondly, we have competition. If you are not providing, and, and everybody competes, Stanford competes against its peers and others compete for students, so we have competition. We're not a monopoly. And unfortunately, the public school system, because it is based on uh, districts that are territorial districts, it's basically a monopoly. So my question is, how do you infuse into the public school system, some of the things that we know has worked in the tertiary systems. And that's why I believe you have to give parents choices. Um, 
I'm all for doing everything we can to make the basic public school, the basic district school as good as it possibly can be. I would pay merit pay to, to better teachers, you know, let better teachers be better rewarded. We know that the most important thing you can do to improve a school is the principal. So spend more time dealing with training of principals and incenting of principals. And oh, by the way, giving them more flexibility so that they can be creative in what they do in their schools and that there are these diktats coming down from high on how you have to run your school. So that's, let's try to improve the public school system because if you've got high expectations for those kids, they will begin to live up to them. But we also have to recognize that poor parents in particular need choices. Well, we have an opt-out system right now in K-12 education. If you are of means, you will move to a district where the schools are good. So that's why houses are expensive in Palo Alto and Fairfax County, Virginia, and, um, and Hoover, Alabama, where my relatives live outside of Birmingham. Those schools are really good. You can send your kid to a good public school as long as you can afford a house in a district where the schools are good. If you're really wealthy, you'll send your kids to private school. So who's stuck in failing neighborhood schools? Poor kids a lot of minority kids. I want to give their parents the same choice that you have because of your resources. That's why I want as many charter schools as we can possibly have. That's why I believe in vouchers to let a parent send that kid to a parochial school or to a private school. You know that when any of those programs, opportunity scholarships are at play, Poor parents are lined up around the block to try to be a part of that lottery. So in a sense, they're voting with their feet from bad public schools, and maybe that will make bad public schools respond. Now, I have a word to say to people who write those editorials in the Washington Post about how charter schools and vouchers are destroying the public school system. I would say to them, you can write that editorial but then send your kids to school in Anacostia. Don't send your kids to Sidwell Friends and write that editorial. I don't understand. This is where I don't understand where civil rights leaders and others can possibly countenance a circumstance in which you condemn the neediest of our kids to poorly performing public schools. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh... But there's a lot of opposition to charters more today than ever before. And um, why is it? Why is it so hard to make this case convincingly to a broad public and to powerful interests in society? Well, the bumper sticker is fix our public schools. That's the bumper sticker. Hey, I'm all for the bumper sticker. But in fact, while you're, quote, fixing the public schools, you're losing generation after generation after generation of kids. And those kids could be prospering in charter schools or in vouchered private schools or in vouchered parochial schools. And so we've got to have a bumper sticker for the school choice movement. And it's got to be save the kids, not save the schools save the kids. And so I think we haven't really um, challenged people enough on this argument. 
as I said, I said, I, I said to a very important uh, teachers union official, when she said, we can't have opt out, I said, we have opt out. Parents who can afford to send their kids to good schools. It's poor parents who can't afford to do We that. have opt out for the rich. We have opt out for the rich. We've got school choice for the rich. Let's get school choice for poor kids. Well, it's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you very much, Condi, for sharing all of this. I have one last question, and that I have to ask you about your expertise as a pianist. I, I will confess, I learned how to play the piano in a small town in Minnesota. My parents were not great musicians, I have to admit, but I tried very hard but I was unable to get much beyond being the fill-in organist at the local churches in town. That's not bad. Uh, yeah, it was okay. But what did it take for you to elevate yourself to another level? Well, I did have an advantage. My mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother were all musicians. And uh, my grandmother taught piano lessons. And I stayed at her house from the age of three while my parents taught school. And I wanted to learn because I saw her teaching piano lessons. So I wanted to learn to play. So I had an unfair advantage, Paul. I grew up in a musical family. Uh, fortunately, I kept practicing. Fortunately, when I was 10 and announced that I was quitting, my mother told me I wasn't old enough or good enough to make that decision. And I kept playing and uh, decided in college that um, it wasn't going to be my profession because I was good. but probably not good enough, but it's given me immense joy to be able to play, to have the chance to play with Yo-Yo Ma, with Aretha Franklin uh, for the Queen of England. And I'll say just one other thing about piano. We've talked a lot about the schools. Uh, sometimes the arts are the way that a kid identifies with excellence. Sometimes the arts help that kid find something within them that says, I'm really good at something. And so um, I'm all for STEM education, but I'm also for keeping the arts uh, in our schools because uh, they're another way for children to express themselves. Well, thank you, uh, Condi, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with Condoleezza Rice, the former U.S. Secretary of State and currently a professor of international relations at Stanford University and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she will become its director on September 1st. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Thank you for joining me every Monday at noon.